Well, let's head into Joshua. We're in Joshua 7. This is week 8. Joshua 7 is a profound word. Last week, we talked about this historic, well-known battle of Jericho where we saw God's glory on full display in the mighty victory over the heathen nation of Jericho. Now, Now, God's battle plans were a little lacking, mostly because there wasn't any. There was no military tactic in this whatsoever. God literally marched 40,000 people around the walls for seven days. Not great military tactic, but we know that there's a purpose to everything with the Lord. The purpose of them walking around the walls of Jericho was to strip the nation of their pride. God requires humility of his people. He required of Joshua. When we remember reading in Joshua 6, when Joshua overlooked the, 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 the walls of Jericho on a hill, and the commander of the Lord's army came to him, and Joshua was humbled. Don't lean into yourself, Joshua. Trust in the Lord. God required humility of his people as he walked around the walls. And make no mistake, God requires humility of us as well. Now, the aftermath of this battle is not pretty. It isn't pretty. Everything in the city is destroyed. Only a remarkable woman named Rahab and her family were spared. Rahab, if we remember the prostitute Rahab, whose faith granted her grace by God, She was rescued from the destruction, her and her family. Rahab's offspring would go on to father King David, and we know from King David's line comes our beloved King Savior, Jesus. And so Rahab is the only living thing, her and her family, the only thing that is spared. Everything else is devoted to God for destruction. God's got this thing about first in our lives, that God wants the first of our fruits He has a special kind of thing for firstborn. And make no mistake, this is the first territory that God has allowed his nation to conquer in the promised land, and he wants it all. It's to himself. And so he devotes everything to destruction, and this is hard to read. There are spots in Joshua that are hard to hear. Everything, men, women, children, young and old, livestock, Everything slaughtered by the hands of the nation of God. All the precious metal, gold, silver, all of it was to be put into God's treasury. Nothing was to be taken by anybody. Everything was to be destroyed. God's wrath on that sin would not be spared in the nation of Jericho. Everything would be utterly destroyed. And we can say, why would God do this? We've read this before. We talked about this in week one. God has got to get to Jesus, and he is going to preserve his nation. He will not allow the perversion of Jericho to yoke at all with his people. He won't allow it, not even a hint. He will keep his nation pure, and so he destroys everything. And God commands Joshua to tell the whole nation, don't take anything for yourself, nothing It is all devoted to the Lord. And if you do know this, you are going to bring trouble on all of us. Prophetic words that are spoken by Joshua. And so this is where we pick up today. Where we see God's triumphal victory turn into destruction and heartbreak. And what we will read today is not easy. What we will say today is not easy. This verse is not intended for anybody. This verse is intended for us all. This story has to weigh on all of us. The truths in here are for all of us. And they're not easy truths to hear. 
Philip Brooks, who's a Bostonian clergyman from long long ago, said that courage is an indispensable requirement in any true ministry. Courage is good anywhere, but it is required in ministry. Required in ministry. If you fear what man says, if you are a slave to men's opinion, go and do something else. Go make shoes that fit them, but you cannot continue to live your life and preach sermons that don't declare what God has declared in his word. And so we will read this truth because it's not easy, but it's truth nonetheless. And we will teach it the best we can for as long as we can. And so I don't say that to draw attention to myself. I hope that I have your attention. I hope that you won't allow the Holy Spirit to be distracted in your life as it pushes on us. Because there's a dire warning in this story. There's a dire warning for all of us. There are whispers that speak to us. That in our lives, when we have these profound victories like Jericho, the enemy is always at hand to try to devour and destroy us. Because it is often the truth that our greatest setbacks often come after our greatest victories. We see that here in Jericho. We'll see it in our lives. God's people are never more vulnerable. They're never more at risk than right after they've won a great victory. And so let's hear what the Lord has to say today. Let's read this together. We're going to walk through the whole story of Joshua 7 because sometimes we just need to get out of the way of the word and we just need to let it do its work in our hearts. And then we're going to try to pull some lessons out of it together. And so we'll start here in Joshua 7 in verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith. That's a big but. In regard to the devoted, devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zareth, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. This is the reader's edge. We know what the story's about. Now it takes place to what happened. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. And so about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at their descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and he fell on the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel and they put dust on their heads and Joshua said, alas, oh Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off your name from the earth, our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? From the heels of victory, Joshua has seemed to have rested on his laurels. Victory does that, doesn't it, in our lives? We often celebrate, and in celebrating, our, our guard is often down. And what we see here 
is deadly consequences. We see it from that very first word, but. But something tragically happened here. Some have said that if you want to read scripture better, learn to understand the conjunctions in your scripture. The buts and the howevers and the therefore speak a story about what is happening in scripture. You would think that Joshua, of all people, would have learned his lesson by now, especially what we walk through in chapter 6, where he's humbled before the Lord's commander, humbled as he's leaning into his own strength, probably building a battle plan that doesn't rely on the Lord's strength. Joshua is humbled. You would think that he would have learned his lesson, but we know some lessons are hard to learn because right after the battle, without prayer, With a desire to gain more territory, Joshua expediently sends a group of spies into the city of Ahi. He wants the city. Do you know Ahi literally is translated from the word heap in the Greek? This is not a big city. It is nothing compared to Jericho. Nothing at all. Not formidable. So when the spies come back, they say, hey, just a few. We don't need all those guys that we had at Jericho. Just a few. That'll do the trick. And what happened? Routed, routed, 36 men die, and all of Israel melts. What happened, God? You promised us this land. You would be with us wherever we went, Lord. What happened? And Joshua is devastated. He tears his clothes. He throws ashes on his head. He and the elders just humiliate him themselves. This is a tantrum. This is like my, my four-year-old when I take away a toy. Just a tantrum. It's like that, but unlike it because they are just devastated in front of God. They are humiliating themselves in public, grieving this defeat. And in Joshua, in his humiliation, he's pleading with God. He laments this defeat. He fears it would reflect on God's glory, his wisdom, his power, his goodness, his faithfulness. And listen, you won't find a better plea in all of Scripture than this. When Joshua says, Lord, what will you do for your great name? What a plea. Joshua knows that it is only on the Lord's power and on his name that he will rise and fall. I would say that we all in that need to plead to God more like that. Lord, what will you do for your great name in my life? And listen to how God responds to Joshua here in the text. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Who sinned here? Achan sinned. Who did God say sinned? Israel. Achan sinned. Who died? 36 men not named Achan. One man sinned, and a whole nation was punished for it. And the Lord gives a stark warning to Joshua here. If you want to continue with me by your side, you will get rid of the sin that's in your camp. That promise I made to you in chapter 1, Joshua 1, where I said, you can be strong and courageous wherever you go because know this, I'm going to be with you. Wherever your footsteps, I'm not with you any longer if you don't deal with the sin that's in your camp. 
And so here's what happens next. Joshua consecrates himself. He has the whole nation devote themselves to God. The next morning, he has them all wake up, and they are divided by tribe. Can you imagine this picture? Millions of people standing divided by tribe, in those tribes divided by clans, in those clans divided by households. Something terrible has gone wrong, and we've got a family business meeting going on here, and I've divided you, all of you. And then he begins to call people out. He calls out the tribe of Judah, and they stand up. Then he calls out the clan of the Zerahites, and they stand out man by man. And then from the clan of the Zerahites, he calls out the household of of Zabdi. And from the household of Zabdi, he calls out Achan, son of Carmi. Can you imagine what that would be like to be in that room? If something devastating had happened here, and it was our fault, and I called us all in and said, I'm going to divide you into counties, into cities, into households, and one by one, I'm just going through eliminating people. Could you imagine? Is it me? Like, could I do this? Does he know about that? Does he know about this? Make no mistake that the Lord is doing this on purpose, that they would remember that sin will not be tolerated. And if you try to hide it, I will expose you. It is a lesson that we learn here. It is a lesson that we find all throughout Scripture. And as Achan is called out, Joshua says to him, I love what he says. He says, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give him praise. This is saying that in our confession of sin, we give God praise and tell him what you have done. Do not hide any of it. And this is what Achan says. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I covered them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. I saw them, I coveted them, and I took them. And the consequences here are harsh. Joshua dispatches his men to go to his tent where the devoted things are. They bring them out, they put them in front of the Lord, and then they take Achan, the gold, the silver, the cloak, all of his sons and all of his daughters, his livestock, to a place called the Valley of Achor the valley of trouble, and it is there that the whole nation of Israel stones to death the entire family of Achan. And in his last words, Joshua says, says this, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And in that very spot, they raised a heap of stones, a heap of stones that would be there and remain there to remind them of God's wrath towards sin. And Scripture says that in that moment that God's anger turned away from Israel. I told you that Joshua is not a book that is easy to read sometimes. And we may say, how is it fair that Achan's whole family gets destroyed for his sin? How could God be so cruel? Where's the grace in that? And I would say that it's all but the mercy of God that only 36 of those soldiers died. Because God, in his just, could have wiped them all out. All of them. 
God will not stand for disobedience. Perfection is his standard, and he will not allow his nation anything less. In his grace and his mercy, he turns away his anger. I would suspect that you wouldn't hear much sorrow from the 36 widows as they cried over the graves of their soldiers. I don't think there is much clearer scripture in our Bibles that lead us to the understanding that God hates sin. Hates it. Hates it. And he cannot spare his wrath from it. Maybe we say, well, why does God hate sin so much? Why does he hate? It, it's innocent in some ways. I just understand this. God hates sin because it is the antithesis of all that he is. It is the antithesis of perfection, of holiness, of justice. God hates sin because it separates you from him. He can't be in the presence of sin. He's blameless. He hates sin because it devours you and leads you into believing that earthly pleasure is better than the abundance that's found in his name. He hates sin because it enslaves us. He hates sin because it lessens our love for him. Hates it. He cannot spare wrath because he cannot stand to see it destroy his creation. And he will allow none of it here. Not a hint. And listen, we've said this before, because we love God, we too should hate sin. We too. And so let's pull some things out of this. It's easy to get lost in the peripherals in this verse. It's easy to get lost in the stories of all the things that are going on. It can be easy to say, well, Joshua's pride here. He, he lacked prayer. He should have slowed down here. This strike while the iron is hot mentality cost him. No doubt he should have. He should have learned his lesson. He should have slowed down. It would be easy to look at the overconfidence of the spies to say, hey, just a few. We just need a few. That's the reason why they were routed. They didn't think clearly. They're overconfident in things. This heap wasn't going to be just taken by a few thousand. All of those things are problematic, no doubt. But they're not, they're not the issue here. Sin is the issue here. They could have taken a, a million men up to AI, and they would have been routed. Others might want to build theology on poor leadership here, but Joshua's not the issue of consequence here. We as the reader has the, have the benefit of this passage in the beginning that tells us what's happening in the story, the reader's edge as it's called. Joshua did not have that benefit. If he slowed down and prayed, would he have? Yes. Yes, he would have. But this isn't on Joshua. Sin is the issue here. And we shouldn't allow ourselves to soften it. We shouldn't allow ourselves to soften it. How often, with all humility in my life, how often do we dismiss the hardships and the realities of our lives as problems of efforts of others and circumstances? How often do we say, well, if Sally would just get her stuff together, my life would be better? How often do we say, well, if they didn't do this, then I wouldn't have done that? It has become unfortunately popular in our own society to think that my own sin, the sin that I have chosen to walk in, might not be the root of my own problems. We like to distract ourselves with feelings and luck. I'm just not lucky. I'm unlucky. 
as if we're deluded that God thinks sin is okay, that he's casual about it. And if we have that idea, let's Aiken's story remind us. Listen, you are not a victim if you are volunteering yourself into a life of sin. You're not a victim, you're a volunteer. Everyone is not out to get you. You have deceived yourself to believe that you can mock God and get away with it. It is true in my life and it isn't true in your life that our defeat and resistance can most often be traced back to private hidden sin in our lives. It can be traced to what's in my tent. Jesus does not, does not ease the burden of sin. He does not ease the burden of holiness. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Better to be blind than the whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better for you to go without it than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. This isn't about literally cutting off your appendages. It's about having a fierce desire to be obedient to God in a way that kills the sin that destroys our lives. And the story of Achan is here, no doubt, to remind us to re-examine our private lives in front of God. Re-examine our private lives because the hand of God and his blessing and his protection are affected by our sin. Make no mistake, don't be fooled by that. Sin will remove from us God's blessing. Not necessarily our salvation, but for sure our blessing. Jesus says this in John 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. What is the opposite of that? If you don't obey my commandments, you will not walk in my love. These are harsh words. Now listen, there is hope for us sinners because of Christ. I'm going to put a glimmer. This is tough. This is heavy. I'm going to put a glimmer, shine here. There's hope for us sinners that we won't face the same punishment that Achan does because of Christ. We're going to discuss that in a bit. But Jesus does say, obey, listen. Remain in my love. When we don't obey, when we don't listen, why would we think that God would give us the things that we want? You don't give your kids that. Nor does God. Nor does God. What does Joshua say, or God say to Joshua? I won't be with you anymore until you get rid of the sin in your camp, this hidden sin. Because the bigger deal with sin isn't just the sin. It's that he hid it. He concealed it and continued in it. What would have happened if Achan took those things and got on the edge of the city and said, oh, God. He said, no, I can't do it. Lord, I've sinned. I've taken these things from you. Do you think 36 men would have died? No. Do you think that God would have had mercy on Achan? You bet he would have. The issue here is that he took it into his tent. He chose it. He hid in it. He continued in it. Because of it, God could not spare his wrath. This is the lie of temptation. It, it, it blinds us from reality and it deafens us to its consequences. It is far too often the case that the things in the realm of temptation always look better in a distance than they, when they are actually gotten. And from this scripture, 
we're going to be able to pull out three things that lies, three things that sin lies to us about. Three things in Joshua that sin, how sin lies. The first is this. It says this, a little won't hurt. Just a little. A little won't hurt. How often does momentary pleasure and sin outweigh the forever pain that it causes? The devastation it causes. How? Just a little. How we say, just, uh, nobody will know about that. Uh, just a bit of this, just a cloak, just some silver, just some gold, I'll be fine. We, we then begin to rationalize, well, I need this. I deserve this. My life is not what it should be. I deserve this. If they didn't do that, then I needed this. Just a little. And look, I'm not going to try to sensationalize things. It's all as humility and love in my heart. I'm not trying to sensationalize this. But somebody doesn't wake up one day and say, you know, I'm going to be a murderer today. It comes from little decisions and value and sin where we get to a place that we never thought we could be in. Little decisions on value, on sin, takes us to a place where we never thought we would be in. And in those little things, we believe that it won't hurt, we can hide it, and it ends up leading to grand failure and public humiliation. Because that's the second thing that sin makes us believe, is that people won't know. Achan surely thought people wouldn't know. Think about this. Achan took a cloak. Do you know what that cloak was? It was a Babylonian cloak. It was all the trend in fashion, like my blazer. All the trend, everybody wanted it. He wanted it. Silver and gold, measly amount, not a whole lot. Where's Achan going to wear that robe? Oh, Achan, nice robe you got there. Isn't it a Babylonian robe? Where'd you get that, Israelite? He can't use any of this stuff. This is what sin just, it makes us dumb. I can speak to it. Because the effects of sin in our life, hidden sin, are so obvious that you cannot hide them. It will be known. I promise, because I know it. You cannot hide it, not forever. And the longer that you hide it, the more devastating the consequences not just for you, but for everyone around you. And not just our actions, but the Lord wants us to kill even the desires of sin in our heart. Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not murder. I say to you, do not have anger against your brother. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, don't even have lust in your heart. God wants to stomp out evil desires in our lives. He wants to expose them. Bring them to the light. Because listen, here's what the Lord has said in the Bible. In the book of Numbers, God said, be sure your sin will be found out. Be sure your sin will be found out. Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Luke, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor anything in secret that will not be brought into the light. You may be able to hide it from one person or a group of people, but you will not hide it from God. Proverbs 15 says that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, watching out on the good and the evil. In public or in private, the principle of the harvest remains true. You will reap what you sow. 
you will reap what you sow. In other words, you can't plant corn and think you're going to get watermelon. It just won't happen. Hidden sin is shrapnel that devours all of us around those that we love that hide it. That's the third lie that sin shows us here in Joshua. Others won't suffer. I'm sure Achan didn't see his behavior being of much consequence. His sin cost his family his lives. Sin has this way of appearing to be trivial. It convinces you that it's just your little secret and no one will ever really pay for it, but we all do. We all do. An entire nation paid for the sin of Achan. How many stories do we know in this room where hidden sin was came to light and destroyed all those people around it, fractured everything, good people, loving people, wounded by hidden sin? And look, I know its ramifications in my life. For years, I told you this, I have hidden, I hid my addiction to pornography. I waited for God to change my desires. Lord, I just changed my desire here. I can't get away from it. You got to do it. I can't do it. Well, my desire is not changing. You know when things switched for me was the moment that I said I wasn't going to, I was going to let this cause pain in my family down the road. I'm not going to put this on my girls. It's okay to be motivated by that and let your desire to be changed through it. It's a lie that others won't suffer. Sin makes us believe this. This is the lies of sin. A little won't hurt. People won't know. And others won't suffer. And so what do we do? Well, here's our responsibility in this. We are to hold one another accountable in love. In love. I, I, we, we just say this way too often in our society. I hear this everywhere I go. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. We've, we've become the society that, that contends that, that, that our words and our actions are, are okay. That I don't, I don't need your feedback from my words and my actions. I'm okay, which, guys, is just not smart. Who in the history of the world has betrayed you and sabotaged you more than yourself? And I'm going to lean into that? Here's what I say. Judge me. Please. Like if you love me, if you love my wife, if you love my family, judge me. Because I only want one thing, and it's God. And if I'm not living to please him, then I need to know about it. Because my self-perception is self-deception most of the time. And if you love me, you will say something to me. Not because you're a critic, not because you're a jerk. I don't need that. But if you love me and you have love in your heart, please tell me. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, why are you judging outsiders? Why are you judging the outsiders? Don't you know it's your job to judge those who are inside? Remove the evil ones from amongst you. We think that the word says, hey, don't judge anybody. No, it says each other. Rebuke us. Walk together here. Don't do it in a way that you're judging intent, assuming like somebody's 
like perspective or, or their, their motivations. We don't assume sin, but when we see it, we love people enough to say, that's not what God has for you. Do you know what could come out of that? Do you know the devastation it can reach? I would contend that we spend too much time judging the world and being far too passive towards each other. Could you imagine the tragedy that would have been averted if somebody in love stepped up to Achan? Achan, man. It's not what God has for you, man. You've got to stop. It's going to cost you more than you know. It's the most loving thing that we can do for one another. And we've got to receive it as much as give it. Because like Israel, we as a church will rise and fall on sin. We will. We're in this together. Whatever God has in front of us, whatever God has for us in this season, sin will absolutely sabotage it. Paul reminds us in Scripture that a little leaven spoils the whole lump. A little yeast spreads through the whole loaf. Now, listen, what I'm not saying is that we're creating a sin Gestapo here where we're going to peer into every crevice of your life and say, ah, there it is. Nobody's going around with a magnifying going, where are you at? It's not what we're doing here. But if we see it, why would we not love you enough with all humility in our heart to keep you from the consequences of that behavior, consequences that we see in Achan here. The second thing, and I would say this, we've got to get to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 speaks specifically about how we should go to one another when we have problems with one another. Far too often we don't read into that. Matthew 18 is a good guideline for us to confront each other. And we don't gossip about it, that's sin. Confront it, you, them, not tell the world, make a team, them. The second thing that we must do is confess. Here's the thing about Achan. For all of just the horrific things that he did here, when he's confronted, when he's on the spotlight, he stands like a man and he confesses. I have sin. He doesn't run from it. You know what he doesn't say? Well, if, if Ernie over here didn't show me where the case was, I wouldn't have taken the, the Shriner, this Shriner, this, this cloak here. He didn't say, well, God, if, if God didn't tell me that it was devoted, then I wouldn't have had these thoughts that I shouldn't have it, and that's the reason I sinned. Well, my neighbor, he's got this really nice robe, and I'm, it's time that I get something in my life. What did Achan say? I have sinned. He owns it, even though he knows the deadly consequences. And so please hear me. No one makes you sin. No one. Not because somebody did something to you. It doesn't matter what they took from you. It's no matter what they said to you. No one can make you sin. You choose it. And God will not allow it to be justified because it's innocent. He doesn't look down in your situation and say, oh, Bill was a real jerk to you there. I totally get it why you sin there. All sin is a falling short of the glory of God. All sin is sin against God first. 
and then to others. All of it is being short of his standard. And we, as a people, must humble ourselves. Nobody is shocked that our lives are messy. Why do we parade around like I got this thing together? We all must be comfortable with these words as well. I have sinned. My words were off. My actions were off. I have sinned. I own it. It's my fault. It's not yours. And I would say that those words today are far easier to say than when Achan was alive. They're far easier to say than they would be for Achan. Because listen, hundreds of years later, a prophet named Hosea would say this about the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards. This is the church. And make the valley of Achor a door of hope. He says that someday this valley of trouble will be a door of hope. And do you know why? Christ, from the tribe of Judah, his scandalous grace and forgiveness on the cross, his redemption plan would be so big and so wide and so amazing that even an offense against God like Achan could be forgiven. He is the doorway of hope. Paul writes it in Romans 5. He says it this way, for while we were still weak and at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, even that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, from the wrath of God, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we, he, we have now received reconciliation. This is the good news of Christ, friends. You don't face the stoning squad of Achan. All of your guilt and your shame, all of your condemnation, all of your shame is given to Christ on the cross. You through him have been spared the wrath of God. All sin still has a punishment. Yours was just taken in Christ. And that grace was costly. It was not cheap grace. And that is why we run to God and repent and confess in our wrongdoing because we know the price that was paid for us. He atoned it for us. He pleaded my cause. He righted my wrong. He set me free. And so understand that the gospel of Christ is not just one about scandalous grace and reconciliation and forgiveness, but it is a gospel that empowers us towards fierce obedience in Christ because of grace, that you can pick yourself back up off the ground, that you're not going to get stoned like Achan was, and you can try again. Confess it, forsake it, and move forward. That is the beauty of God. And so today, the ball's in your court. Scripture reads this way. If we continue to hide in our sin, it, it's not good for us. And the Lord will see it through. Let the Holy Spirit give us courage to walk out. 
Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. It is not easy to hear sometimes. Thank you for your truth that doesn't allow us just to squirm off the hook. And so God, will you just take your word and will you place it into our hearts? Will you keep this in our frontal cortex, in our hearts, that we would remember these things, that Lord, we would pray a desire to be holy unto you and you alone, that we would remove the things of our tent out of our tent, Lord, that we would confess them, that we would walk in your costly grace, Lord, that you have given to us. We would forsake it and run towards you, Father. I pray for this church, Lord. Lord, purify us. Lord, start with me. Start with me. Start with my heart. Start with my family. Start with our elders, our trustees, Lord. Purify us. Make us holy unto your name. All we want, Lord, is you. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this in your awesome name. Amen.